Hello and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a vibrant personality on the podcast. She talks all about her journey from Food Network star to having her own show. She shares behind-the-scenes stories from filming Guy's Grocery Games, and she gets real about mental health and competition nerves. She's a cooking show host, cookbook author, and fellow journalist who always brings the smiles and the party whenever she's on screen. It's Artie Sequera. Artie, welcome to the podcast. I don't know about you, but I am ready for an Artie party. If you are, I am so ready. What are the main ingredients for an Artie party besides yourself, of course? Lots of food, usually things that I've made, usually a bunch of cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) That's my kind of party. (laughs) Yeah. And that's it. I mean, for me, I love people to walk into my house or anything that I'm hosting and feel like it's their home. People will be like, oh, can I get a glass of water? And I'm like, of course, I could get you something better. (laughs) But the glasses are over there. Like, that's one of my favorite things to say to people. The glasses are over there. Help yourself. Not because I'm a lazy host, because I want you to feel so crazy comfortable here that I get 100% of you and 0% of any sort of created artificial you. I just want the whole real you. For me, that's the thing that's always been really important to me, whether we were in our sort of one bedroom apartment in L.A. and there were like 50 people at our house. You know, people were sitting on the floor. They were sitting wherever they could find a spot. And that's still like one of the most magical get togethers I've ever had. I love that everybody does congregate towards wherever the food is. And now you have a beautiful space for entertaining, by the way. I have major kitchen envy. (laughs) I'm still in a rental in Brooklyn, but I love the Art Deco inspired green tile. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, It is your dream kitchen. I want to know what were some of your must-haves when designing this space? You know, we wanted a really long island so that people could sit at it and work at it. I wanted my kids to be there so, you know, we could all roll chapatis at the same time or we could all shuck oysters at the same time. The other thing that was important to me was color. I just wanted as much color as possible, you know, balanced by, you know, we have white cabinets, but that's why we decided to do this big, bright green backsplash. And if you haven't seen it and you're listening, you can just go to my Instagram and check it out because I take a lot of photos in front of it. But yeah, we got this tile by this company called Zia. And the ironic thing about that is, you know, we moved to North Carolina about a year ago and here we are in Raleigh and we don't really know anyone. We're missing LA desperately. And Mm. Zia is based in LA. So I was just like, there's a little piece of LA still in my kitchen. You know, when, as soon as I spotted that bright green tile, I was like, that is my tile. I just wanted something bright and beautiful and cheerful and full of joy Because honestly, that's how I feel when I cook. You know, it's peaceful and it's meditative. And yes, there are absolutely billions of times when I'm making my kids yet another snack that I'm like, this sucks. But (laughs) for the most part, the fact that I get to cook is such a joy to me. And it's, it's something that's not lost on me, especially at the moment, because my husband has ulcerative colitis, which means there are ulcers on his colon. Mm -hmm. So he has been on a you know, a diet that has gotten more and more and more restrictive. And these days he eats meat and that's it. He's on the carnivore diet. He eats meat and duck eggs and organs and dates. 
those are the things that are quote unquote allowed. And so I look at what he cooks every day and it feels so restrictive that it makes me so grateful for every single thing that I get to cook. It's important to, you know, have a space that you love, especially when you are spending so much time there. What does a typical day at home look like for you? I know it's a lot different if you're traveling or, you know, shooting shows and that kind of thing. But when you are home, what is a day in the life of Artie? So it usually starts pretty early because again, children. So they are up at six, no matter what time we put them to bed. And so I'm either up with them or I hand them the iPad, true story, and let them watch some shows. I'm sorry, I'm a horrible parent, but sometimes I just need it. I think you're a normal parent. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. And then I make them breakfast, which can be anything from, you know, they're so spoiled. They don't like to eat the same thing two days in a row. So we vacillate. We go back and forth between like a cooked breakfast and cereal. And then on the weekends, I usually make them like pancakes or waffles, or we try to do something different, or I'll make something like a traditional Indian breakfast for them just to sort of sneak in some culture, some of our culture. (laughs) The rest of the day is sort of, it's a juggle between things that are important to me that are not work-related. Like I, you know, I try to do my quiet time, prayer time every day, and then spending time with my kids and making sure that we have a good balance of things that they should do, clean their room, Mm-hmm. And things that they get to do, like right now, you know, we bought them one of those inflatable pools and they're playing outside. Honestly, I usually skip lunch, even though I make sure that the kids have lunch. I don't know why lunch is so hard. <laughs> lunch is so hard. And then at around three, I'm like, oh, I'm starving. So then I have a decaf Americano because that's an appetite suppressant. <laughs> this is so bad, but this is the truth. But it's real. We but like that. the truth. And then at around like Four, I start freaking out about what to make for dinner and I throw something together and we eat by 5.30 and then it's like PJ's bedtime story, the whole nine. Then we're on our own and my husband and I just kind of stare at each other (laughs) (laughs) and go, okay, so now what do we get to do? And so, and then we do it all over again the next day. Sounds like a pretty normal parent routine. Do you try to keep a routine or is that kind of impossible with kids? I really do always try. And then it doesn't really work out. I mean, every day is so different in this line of work because there'll be a day where I have a bunch of writing to do, or there'll be a day where I have a bunch of recipe testing to do, or I have an appearance over Zoom. And so every day is so different that it's a little bit hard to get some kind of routine. So the things that we've ended up doing are, again, like food related, but they sort of keep some sort of track of time and some sort of sense of, hi, it's a weekend, let's celebrate. Because Mm -hmm. my husband and I both work for ourselves, so we're home. So a Tuesday and a Friday don't feel that different. So Friday is family movie night and pizza night, like so many families probably across the country. And so I genuinely look forward to that because it's pizza night, movie night, and cocktail night for me. I love it. And it like is a good barometer for what day of the week it is, because I work from home as well. I know I know what you're talking about. Everything kind of blurs together a little bit. So it's nice to have that. There are definitely some things that are non-negotiables every day. One is some form of quiet time, whether it's just praying or reading the Bible or something. And I've started to try to get the children into it, too. I just think it's a really good habit, which I haven't mastered yet. So I'm hoping if I start them now they'll get it. Mm -hmm. And then working out, which my husband and I started doing last year, inspired by Antonia. It's kind of cool because 
even though we never worked out together in LA. And then it was only when I moved away and then I, you know, would come to visit. Like I think when I was shooting Candyland was the first time that I went and worked out at her gym and it kicked my butt so hard. I said, well, I want to keep this going because I felt so energized and I felt like I was on this high, honestly. It was a way for me to keep all of that and have all of that, but also stay connected to my friend. And so I'm still, I mean, like a total cult member. I'm like wearing the t-shirt of the gym. (laughs) And so that's something that we definitely do like five days a week. I agree with the energy and just the the feeling better part is is very important. And I love how you're always, you know, posting inspirational quotes um, and your thoughts kind of on Instagram as well, which I think is also, I'm sure, very motivating to other people. We love your honesty, your realness. I know you inspire a lot of people, but I want to know who inspires you. I mean, the person that I see every day is my husband. And I know that sounds trite, but honestly, especially because he has ulcerative colitis and it, he had it as a child and then he was miraculously healed. And so we never thought it would come back. And so for it to come back and for him to lose so much weight and so much freedom and for him to still not stick his head and hit the sand and pretend like nothing's happening, but to persist anyway, to be an amazing father and a really attentive husband and to just keep going to me is so inspiring. That's such an easy out to say, well, you know what? I'm exhausted and I'm malnourished and I don't want to do anything. And he has never not once said that. So to me, that gives me the inspiration to just push past those things where I feel like I have an easy out here Mm -hmm. to push past the discomfort, to push past things that feel easy and to do the hard things. That's lovely. I mean, you've been so open and transparent, you know, just about mental health, specifically postpartum depression, which I know Mm -hmm. you experienced with both of your daughters. Knowing how much it affected you, why is it so important for you to to raise awareness and just talk about it? By the time I was pregnant with my oldest, I was a little bit older. I have the privilege of like an amazing education. I'm pretty intelligent. I'm really curious about things. And so I felt like I had a lot of resources. I had a midwife. I, you know, I, I was trying to do it in the most well-rounded way possible with all the information and all the birthing classes and all of that stuff. And I still feel like it blindsided me. When you first have a child or even, heck, if you have your fifth, you feel so responsible for everything that is happening both to you and to your child. I remember I would like breastfeed and I had the phone in my other hand and I was constantly Googling one thing or another that I thought was wrong, that I was doing wrong or that she was suffering or, you know, why is she making these noises and stuff like that. And and for me, the conclusion always was that it was my fault and it was my responsibility to take care of. To have that as a default thing that you're carrying around and then on top of that, to have your brain failing you it just doubles down on that feeling and you feel so responsible. Like, oh, if I have postpartum depression, anxiety, psychosis, then it's obviously my fault. And so I just wanted to let women know, A, if you're having a really, really, really hard time, it's not abnormal and it's also not insurmountable. One of the most interesting things to me was when I had told Guy about it and he was like, I had no idea. You know, he's like, you're like the bubbliest person how could this happen to you? And I was like, I just wanted people to know women and their partners to know that this could happen and that it wasn't just a mother 
feeling sorry for herself. I remember going to a support group and sitting there with all these women. I had a very mild case compared to what they were going through. But so often when there was a new woman that had come in, we would ask about, how's your husband taking it? So often she'd say, oh, my husband thinks I'm just making it up. Or he thinks I have it so easy because I get to stay home. And I'm not saying all husbands are like that because in my situation, it was my husband that said to me, you're not okay. We need to get you some help. That's what I think is so important is for the partners to also know that this is something that's real and can happen and that in a way, your job as their husband is to fight for them. So yeah, so that's why and it has been incredibly validating to me and redeeming to me that so many people have written to me and said, I was wondering whether I had it, had it. And then I watched you talk about it on grocery games of all things. <laughs> and that's when I reached out and I got help. Or someone has said, I think my friend has it who should I call, you know, and I'm able to help people. And I'm a woman of faith. And I remember when I was walking through it and I was praying, I was like, God, why would you let this happen to me? And I just got this really strong sense that he was like, because I know you'll go do something about it. I know you'll go redeem that this time. And so that has become kind of my rallying cry is like, I'm going to redeem that time that this stole from me. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really beautiful. And I think that the fact that you can, you know, get through to so many other people who might be going through that. I think that that if everything was over again, like you would probably not want to go through it. But the fact that you're able to, you know, help so many other people, I think is is really beautiful and important. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things about depression specifically, but I assume it's similar with other forms of mental health issues, is that it makes you want to crawl up in a corner and be by yourself. The last thing you want to do is be in the same room as anybody and talk about your feelings. <laughs> and unfortunately, and maybe ironically, that is the first step to healing, is to get in a room with somebody and talk about it and to sort of shine a light on every depressed, maybe depraved thought that you're having and to just get it out because that, in a way, steals the shame from it. Mm-hmm. And that, so, you know, for me, going to that support group was one of the most powerful things I could have done. And so I suppose that's one of the reasons I talk too. is like, hey, I'm talking about it. You need to talk about it, too, because that's how you're going to heal. Absolutely. You mentioned your education. I, I know you were born in Mumbai, raised in Dubai, attended a British school. You finished off your education in Chicago. You were in L.A. and now you're on the East Coast. A lot of different culinary influences, cultural influences, when you kind of look back at the beginning of all of this, what are some of your earliest food memories? The first thing I always think about are the markets in Dubai, the fish market, the fruit and vegetable market. It was every Friday, rain or shine, which in Dubai is shine. <laughs> My dad would go to the markets. You know, we didn't call them farmer's markets. It's just the market. Go to the market and you know, my dad comes from a long line of farmers. And so he is so fascinated by things that grow. And so he made friends with all the best vendors there. And he had an apricot guy, he had an apple guy, you know, and so he would come home with all these incredible bits of 
fruit and vegetables from all over the world, whether it was lychees or mangoes from India or apricots from Iran. And so we would eat these things and also have this sense that the world was very small, especially Dubai being in the middle of all of that, you know, and being a port city. These things were, it was so easy to have access to those. That definitely is one of the, you know, the first memory for me is going and interacting with the people who either grew the things that we were going to eat or knew the people who had grown them and could talk to us about, oh, you know, you want to get the green one because that's the sweeter one or whatever it was. And it being sort of a loud, vibrant marketplace. And, you know, there were like, you would step on pieces of fruit that were on the ground and and the fish market stank to the high heavens, but it was great because some of the fish were still moving. I mean, I just, I miss that. I miss that about going to buy food. You know, it's very sanitary, which is not a bad thing, but it's a little sanitized Mm -hmm. now. And I feel like it's missing the heartbeat of what I remember growing up. How have all of those experiences really, you know, influenced your cooking style? Because it is a unique one, I think. I'm fascinated by people's food memories. You know, sometimes it's hard to break people down and sort of get to the heart of who they are and what's important to them. But if you start talking about food, it's such an easy avenue. You know, as someone who always felt like an outsider, I felt like an outsider in Dubai because I wasn't Arab. I felt like an outsider in India because I didn't grow up there. I didn't speak the language. I have a weird accent, you know, and I felt like an outsider with my British friends because even though I knew the same music movies and references that they did, I didn't go back to England in the summer. So I don't have that to draw on. And so to me, food was a way to still communicate with all these different cultures and still sort of feel like, hey, we kind of get each other, right? Mm. And that was the way that my mom communicated with people too, is through food and sort of trying to blend food together. She had a whole stack of Australian Women's Weekly had these cookbooks that they would get out. And she had a, a shelf installed in the laundry room (laughs) just so she could put all 200 of those up on the shelf. And I remember going in there, you know, this is before satellite TV. You couldn't just put the TV on when you were bored. And I would go in there and I'd pull them down and flip through them and just, just by osmosis, just absorbing all these different flavor combinations. So I've just always been fascinated by, you know, the authentic story of where a dish came from. And then after understanding that, being able to say, okay, well, how do my food memories communicate with that? And sort of making it my own. And, you know, then getting married to a Boston Irish German dude (laughs) means that, you know, at first when I started cooking for him, he was like, ooh, I don't get this food. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, I'd kind of try it from a different angle. I was like, oh, what if I make it a sandwich? What if I take the heat down and sweeten it a little bit? And now he's like one of the most, well, he was one of the most adventurous eaters I know. So I'm a living example of food having been a really beautiful and silent, but very loud communicator. I mean, it it really does connect us all. Growing up, it seemed like your love of food was matched only by your love of performing. Tell us about your your dad's nickname for you as a kid and where that came from. He had to tell me this only after I won Food Network Star. So <laughs> my dad said that when I was little, my nickname was Showcase. Amazing. Because I always had a song and dance. or And I remember, you know, learning jokes at school and then coming home and telling my dad. And he would be so excited. And then there'd be like an office party. He'd be like, Aru, Aru, tell him that joke about the Irishman. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, I got really self-conscious and stopped, got kind of serious and sort of receded 
but I, I played the piano and I was really into music. And so that was one way that, you know, we still did concerts and I was a choir director. And, and then when it came to a vocation in life, I thought, well, I want to be a reporter and I want to be a reporter for the right reasons. It was really important to me that I made that clear to people that it wasn't just that I wanted to be on camera and, you know, get all the glamour of it. Like I wanted to rough it and I wanted to get the real stories and I wanted people who didn't have a platform to get a platform through our reporting, you know, and, and maybe that was a form of showcasing too. <laughs> well, yeah. didn't you have like a, a, a pretend, you know, news program and a oh, pretend yeah. cooking show? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we got, you know, there were two newspapers in Dubai. We got them both. Okay. And so I would sit there and at the dinner table and I remember just reading them out loud, like a news presenter. And then, um, yes, I had, you know, Play-Doh, we called it plasticine. Um, and I would roll out chapathis and pretend to do my own cooking show. And sometimes those things that we do as kids are, are really the prophetic in a way of <laughs> what we want to be doing. I mean, you, you kind of manifested your own destiny on both of those things because before, you know, Food Network, you, you went on to earn a journalism degree at Northwestern. You yeah. worked at CNN, you produced a documentary what sparked that interest and, and passion for you, you know, in terms of, like you said, wanting to do it for the right reasons and tell people's stories? I grew up in Dubai during the first Gulf War. And I remember, you know, we had one TV station, Channel 33, and it started, <laughs> it started at four o'clock. It started with a call to prayer. And then, it, then um, we had like an hour and a half of cartoons. And then it went into like what I thought was boring TV. But during the Gulf War is when CNN very wisely would pipe their programming through these local channels. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time that I had seen real news, you know, news where people went out and talked to people and got the story from the people, as opposed to just getting a statement and reading the statement, you know? So I think that was just so eye-opening to me. I, I didn't know that was possible. And so I think the idea of, you know, I would watch... Christian Amanpour was just my freaking superhero. My dream was to work with her one day because I just thought, here is a woman who is doing it and risking her life to go and get the real story to me felt like a really admirable way to live your life. And I think there's something in me that has always wanted to do something very admirable. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I want to get to the end of my life and feel like I exhausted my potential and I didn't leave anything behind. And so that felt like a really good way to do it. And it felt like a respectable career. Coming up next, Artie talks about her experiences filming Food Network star and Artie Party. And she teases what you can expect from the new season of Halloween Wars. So how did you go from journalist then to, you know, the food world? I mean, I know you went to cooking school. You started your YouTube show, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. So how how did that all come together in a nutshell? Well, I was long and painful, frankly, because all I'd ever wanted to do was be a journalist. And I identified with that so strongly that when, you know, I got married and I moved to L.A. And suddenly, you know, that was right when the news business contracted and I couldn't find work. And I also felt like I wasn't hustling for it. And that is a huge part of being a journalist is wanting to do it so badly that you hustle. And I was like, well, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm not feeling that hustle. So then I felt really lost, really, really lost. And I remember we had Food Network, frankly, and I would watch every cooking show that there was. 
whether it was on cable or on the networks, I would just watch every single one I could get my hands on because it just brought me peace and something in there fed me. And then I would walk to the supermarket because I didn't know how to drive yet. I would walk to the supermarket, grab a bunch of ingredients, come home and cook. And for me, it was a sense of control again over what felt like a very chaotic part of my life. It was something that I felt like I could do. And then that's what sort of my husband got me a gift certificate to a local cooking school. And I did that. But even then I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm just doing it because it's kind of fun. And this is silly. And I felt like a failure. Mm. I felt like I had totally disappointed my parents that they had wasted all this money on me. But after cooking for a little while, you know, I worked at a restaurant for a while and then I started this YouTube show. And then someone said, based on watching those videos, there were different people in my life that said, hey, do you know that Food Network has this show called Food Network Star? And I was like, I will never do it. (laughs) So how did you finally do it then? Did, Did somebody send the tape in for you or did you actually finally do it? I really felt like God was like, you got to go do this, sister. In fact, I remember going through all the rounds of interviews and stuff. And I remember sitting there reading my book and the phone rang and it was a 917 number, which I was like, that's New York. And they're calling and they're saying that they want me and I'm not going to pick up. Ah! And I listened to the voicemail and I was like, oh no, they want me. This is so scary. I just was such a believer in prerequisites, you know, like Mm -hmm. you need to have all of this training and all of this experience in order to do this for real on the Food Network, which I was like, if you're on the Food Network, that means that you're an expert and you know what you're doing. I didn't know what it was called back then, but it was 100% imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I still feel that today, but I did it. And thank God I won, because otherwise that would be a lot of therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did win. Uh, I did. Season six, it was over a decade ago at this point. Oh my gosh. What do you remember about that experience and going through the actual, you know, competition? I remember being scared a lot. I remember feeling like I was constantly being asked to walk on water. And somehow every week I managed to do it. And I was genuinely surprised. That just taught me that I cannot trust my own perception of things all the time. Mm. That whole like trust your gut thing. I'm like, no, not mine. I (laughs) I can't. Because if I did, I would never do anything. And I'd never try anything because, you know, I was just like, I suck and I'm going home and then I'd win. And I was like, what the heck? You know, and I think about my friends that I made on that show and I just the whole experience of it. I'm forever changed. Do you like competing? Are you good at competition shows or do you get pretty nervous? I do not like it. (laughs) I do not. However, I do always feel great afterwards. It's kind of like working out, I guess but in front of millions of people. (laughs) Yeah, I just, you know, the one thing that I do enjoy about it is seeing what my brain will come up with under pressure. I do think that there's a part of your brain that you don't have access to until you're in some form of a crisis situation. So sometimes I'll come up with a dish and I'm like, dang, where did that come from? You know, that was amazing. It's just a good exercise to challenge yourself. And I think we're missing out on the lessons of those experiences and sort of a chance to see yourself in a hundred percent different light. That experience also led to the arty party uh, on Food Network, which was so fun. And I, I think I personally could listen to you, you know, talking about food and cooking, you know, all day long. I can't watch those episodes. Really? Why not? <laughs> I don't know. It's not terrible, but it's a little like I'm not a hundred percent that person anymore. 
And, and also, you know, I was making mistakes that I would never make now, but I made back then because I was so green and so new to this whole thing. And if I had to do it over again, there would definitely be changes. But I'm also really proud of the stuff that we did on that show. Like there wasn't another show that was cooking with those ingredients and in that fashion. I'm proud of the fact that people got very comfortable with saying and using turmeric and garam masala and green chilies and ginger after that. That makes me happy. We, we talk a lot about that on the, on the podcast, you know, how important representation is in media and especially food media. And I'm sure that there are a lot of, you know, young people, girls, especially, you know, who have those roots in India to see themselves, you know, represented on screen, to see those ingredients that you were just talking about that that weren't being talked about as much. How special is that to you to be that person for them? It's huge. I mean, there wasn't I think Padma had had a show a few years before mine. She was doing some of that, too. When I won, I mean, I was just I felt this responsibility. (laughs) I want to be as authentic to who I am as possible. But I also know that for many people who were watching back then, they had never even considered cooking with these ingredients before because they felt very foreign and very scary and very unfamiliar. And people don't want to cook something that they feel like they're going to mess up because it's a waste of time and money and a meal. And I get it. I'm the same way, you know? So the fact that I got to do that. And then now I look at all of the people, Indian American, South Asian American, South Asian, that are now on TV or have cookbooks. You know, there are just so many of them and they weren't there when I started. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to take credit for it, but a little part of me is like, if you hadn't gone, they wouldn't have a place right now. And I feel really humbled and really grateful that I was given that opportunity and given that privilege. It's it's huge. And now they get to watch you on Guys Grocery Games as well as other programming on Food Network. But I want to talk about that one first because I think it looks like an absolute blast. Do you have like behind the scenes stories you can share? Because like I said, like all of the judges on the show, you guys seem to have the best time. You're all really good friends and, and it definitely shows on screen. It feels like camp. You know, we're shooting up in Sonoma County. So none of us are home, mm-hmm. including the crew. The only person that's home is Guy. You know, at the end of the day or before, we're like, do you need a coffee? I'm going to the coffee shop. I'll get you some. You know, what are you doing for dinner after we finish shooting? And so it's a time for us to work and work really hard, but then to check in with each other and see how we're doing. And, you know, especially because we're all across the country, we don't get that. And yet to do this line of work and work the way that we do, there's really only a small number of people that do that and understand each other and understand the highs and the lows of it. To get to go to grocery games, first, it's just a blast and guy makes the hours fly. We all love each other and we have so much fun. Speaking of being on set, do you have any any new shows that we can be on the lookout for? Yes. So I was away for three weeks because I was shooting Halloween Wars. Fun. Which is super fun, especially because, you know, I'm not a sugar artist. I'm not a chocolatier. I can bake a cake. I hadn't been in this world before. So for me to see what people can do with evaporated sugarcane juice, <laughs> right? That's what sugar is. And they could transform it into all these incredible things. It was really, it was such a wonderful experience. And I got to just meet incredible people. I'm really excited about it. We're excited to see it. This has been so much fun, but we are going to finish off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you. Okay. So rapid fire how do you take your coffee? Black, no sugar, no cream. Favorite comfort food? Probably chapatis and yogurt. Favorite Food Network show that you do not appear on? 
It's still Ina. It's still Ina. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah. (laughs) Favorite food city? Los Angeles. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Just tell the truth. It to yourself and to others. Just tell the truth and stop worming your way out of things. That's that's great advice. Uh, if, (laughs) If you were a dish, what would you be? I'd be kitchety. Kitchity is like our version of like a rice porridge, rice mm-hmm. and lentil porridge. And it's actually funny because during COVID last year, I went to the Indian store to get rice and lentils. And you know how in regular grocery stores, we were out of flour? At the Indian store, we were out of rice and lentils. It's like, <laughs> it was like the comfort food. But for me, Kitchity, because I, you know, I have all of these different influences running through my veins. And when you eat Kitchity, every bite is different. Mm. And every version of Kitchity is different too. So to me, that's, it's like Indian gumbo. That's, Love that. That's who I am. Best thing you've ever cooked? The first thing that comes to mind are my ribs mm. with a, it's a tamarind ketchup manis sauce with shallots and garlic and, honey and they are so dang good. And it was one of those recipes that I woke up and I was like, the muse, the muse is here. I'm going to make these ribs. And they, they just turned out fire from the very beginning. I love ribs. So that Mm -hmm. sounds absolutely perfect. Thing you are most proud of in your career? The show. I think, you know, I'm proud of myself for doing Food Network Star because it really was, it was so stinking scary for me. But I am proud of Aussie Party and what it was and what it gave birth to, what it made room for. It was sort of the tip of the spear. And, and I just I just look at all, all the recipes now. I mean, how many recipes? I opened Food Network magazine. And, you know, in the sort of the weekly cooking ideas, weeknight cooking ideas, there's always something that has like a little Indian influence to it. And I'm like, that wasn't how it was, you know? (laughs) And so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of being part of that movement. You started the party. Well, before we let you go, we have one final question that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. And that would be, what's on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert take us through the entire day. There are no rules. You can travel. You can time travel. So for breakfast, we would go to Singapore Mm. and we would have the, you know, they have like a whole elaborate set up for breakfast with the rice, with a congee, mm-hmm. pieces of fish and chili and sambal and all these things that go. I just love a savory breakfast. So we would start there. Then somewhere mid-morning, we would go to Republique in Los Angeles and we would get a cup of coffee, like an Americano and their Queen Amman and maybe a couple of their pastries. Uh, so that's around 11. Okay. And then around one or two, we would have tacos for lunch. We go to Marisco's Jalisco in on the east side of LA and have seafood tostada. And then they have these fried shrimp tacos. They close it up and then they fry it. And then in the afternoon, I would go to the farmer's market and just chomp on whatever fruit is in season. Because that, to me, the, the LA farmer's market is still my favorite. And then for dinner, we would go, we'd fly to India and we would eat whatever my mom has cooked up. Yeah, Because that is, she is the bee's knees. She is the progenitor. And and for today, she is she is the last bite as well. Okay. No dessert then. Or, or she's cooking dessert too. Oh, no, 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 no. We are going for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and I would take her with me because we are like an ice cream obsessed family. So I would take them to Salt and Straw in mm. Los Angeles and, and I would make them bring back the mincemeat 
ice cream, which is their Christmas flavor, which tastes just like mince pies and has little pieces of the pastry in there and the candied orange peel and the currants that are soaked in brandy. It's so oh, stinking good. And they made it one year and they never made it again. Maybe they'll listen to the podcast and hear hear your cries. Do you know where the name Artie Party came from? No. So my husband and I have been together since we were 18 in college, right? At Northwestern. And so one day for Valentine's Day, we went to 7-Eleven and we each got a pint of Ben and Jerry's <laughs> for ourselves because we are fat kids. So we sat in his car looking at the lake, eating our ice cream. And he said, well, if you had your own Ben and Jerry's flavor, what would it be? And so mine was basically every candy bar in like peanut butter ice cream. And he said, you know, that sounds great. And he goes, you know what we could call it? And I said, what? And he said, Artie Party. And I was like, that's lame. (laughs) (laughs) And then so many years later, when I started my YouTube show, that's what we called it. And it stuck. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with all all the shows this year. Thank you, Jamie. Woo! Such a great time getting to know more about Artie. I really love her transparency and honesty about her life, both in and out of the kitchen. You can catch more of Artie on Halloween Wars, premiering Sunday, September 19th at 9, 8 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Bye.